Welcome to Australian Hiker, your online hiking resource. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage. This is episode 109 of the Australian Hiker podcast, and in today's episode, we're going to be talking about environmentally friendly hiking. Now, recently I received an email from one of our hikers asking if at some stage I was intending on discussing um, hiking and waste reduction, uh, and particularly as it related to caring for the environment. And uh, I thought it was actually quite a good topic. And usually when I um, go through and start working on or preparing a a written article or a podcast, I tend to look at what uh, is already on the internet, how how it's represented, uh, just to try and get an idea of what people are talking about. And I must admit, um, while there are articles um, and discussions on the internet relating to this topic, when you compare it to a lot of other other topics such as choosing pieces of gear or um, making fires or keeping fit and all that sort of stuff, it really was underrepresented. And I think one of the things that really um, struck me with this topic was in choosing a, a title for what we were going to call this, it actually took me a bit of time to think about what I was going to call it. It's interesting, isn't it? Because there's there's um, some discussion about bits of this, but it's it's very. Um, uh, I guess I would call it narrow um, and very individually focused in terms of um, your things you carry and so on, but not that broader impact um, that we're all trying to have, um, or a more positive impact in a broader way. Yeah. Now. Before you switch off thinking that this podcast <laughs> is, is going to take the high, uh, the moral high ground, be warned that while we're all about minimising our impact on the environment, it's really not as simple as it sounds. So you've got to be conscious about what you're doing and using. You must be persistent. Uh, and this is what we're going to talk about in today's episode. So the first thing we're going to talk about is the three R's. And this is a, a topic that most people have uh, actually heard about. And, and it, in all honesty, they're probably more represented these days as being the five R's. Can't uh, have too many R's. Can't have too many R's. <laughs> uh, and the five R's are refuse, reduce, reuse, repurpose, and recycle in that order. Uh, and the order of the R's are actually important. For simplicity, we've chosen to focus on three of the R's, um, and that is reduce, reuse, and recycle. And these are the ones that most people are are most commonly uh, uh, used to. So in terms of hiking, reduce is about reducing the items you carry, um, but it's also got links to reducing the weight that you carry. So that concept of lightweight and ultralight hiking also um, comes in here. And when you're looking at reducing what you're carrying, there are a number of things that you need to think about. The obvious one is, do you really need that particular item? And a few podcasts ago, we talked about uh, people tending to pack their own fears and carry things that they may need, but don't necessarily 
um, need. So they're latched onto them, but really they're not going to be of use to them when they're hiking. So many new hikers will carry um, a full change of clothing for every day that they're out hiking. And if if you want to do that, then that's okay because you've got to carry it. But if you've got a full set of gear for every new day, that also means you've actually um, got a lot of consumer items that you probably don't need as well. Yeah, and as Jill said, you know, this is sort of related to the concept of lightweight and ultralight hiking. But whereas when you're talking about reducing your weight for the sake of reducing your weight, you may not necessarily be, be considering the environmental impact. You're more considering that how can I reduce weight uh, to, to minimise the impact on my body, not necessarily on the environment. So this is sort of taking it a step further and saying, well, okay, I'm going to reduce the weight I'm carrying, but how can I do this and to minimise the impact on on my surrounding uh, environment? Yeah, that's right. And and something else that you need to be thinking about is um, what, what can you have that's going to have uh, multiple uses? So an example that, that we use here is that um, for Tim and I, we use our spare clothing, our um, emergency clothing, if you like, um, bundled up as a pillow. Um, so so we don't um, have inflatable pillows, which is another item that's been manufactured, been produced somewhere else. Um, we use what we have as the pillow. Having said that, I do actually have on my, on my long distance hikes, uh, I'm, my case for my iPad that I carry with me just so happens to double as a uh, uh, as an inflatable pillow. But um, you know, if I'm not carrying the iPad, uh, the the pillow doesn't tend to come with me. Yeah, but let me also say it's not a very comfortable inflatable pillow. But <laughs> The other thing as far as reducing is is buying items that will last for a long period. So if you buy something that you use once then throw away or use a couple of times and throw away, and I suppose a good example here is, um, you know, can you look at um, things such as Ziploc bags uh, and replace them with some other product? Um, so you know, Ziploc bags are a pretty important part of hiking these days, but is is buying a better quality, more durable bag going to be better off uh, than buying a disposable one that might be cheaper, but you only get one use out of it? Yeah, I think there's also something in here. And again, you know, we were saying that this is a little bit more complicated than it first appears. So um, a couple of examples in everyday life, non-hiking life, um, the plastic shopping bags that um, you you can get instead of buying single-use shopping bags, um, you you purchase the bags and you keep reusing them. Um, you actually need to reuse those bags something like about 50 to 60 times to get ahead of the environmental impact that you've had by having the bag in the first place. Um, now, I don't know about anybody else, but the back end of our cars are full of plastic bags. I think some might have been used a fair few times, but you go into the shop and you forget and you take, you know, you end up buying another one and you put them in the back of the car again. Um, I think there are some of our bags in the back of our car that certainly haven't been used 60 times. The other thing that I, um, uh, stat that I came across was that the, um, the keep me mugs that everybody gets their coffee put in, they get 
go to the coffee shop and instead of taking um, a takeaway cup away with them, they get their keep me mug refilled. Um, that's another item that's been produced, that's been manufactured. That's another item that you actually need to use several hundred times to get the value out of it in an environmental sense. So, you know, sometimes we make ourselves feel good by having these things around and we say we're not, we're not taking a, a paper cup away. Um, but we need to, if we have them, we need to make sure that we use them and use them a lot. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, and I do know a number of people that end up with multiple uh, uh, keep, keep cups uh, just because they're forgotten and they end up buying another one. And, they, yeah, they get lined up on the desk in, in the office, yeah, I know. <laughs> so a good measure here is at the end of the hike, have you used everything that you, you've packed? Now, this is this is an obviously a good performance indicator in relation to first aid gear or emergency beacons. Hopefully, you never have to use those. Uh, but certainly, uh, things that you know, if you're carrying something um, just in case, um, and you know you've, you're carrying four changes of clothing and you only use three of them or you only use one of them, um, was that what did you really need that last set? Um, so again, it's thinking about what you're carrying, uh, and again, if you want to carry it and you're uh, you are using it, that's fine. But you know, consider what you're doing rather than just carrying it for the sake of it. Yeah, but even in that sense, I would say you you've purchased a full set of gear, um, and you might be using it, but really, that's a big impact that you're having. I uh, I mean, while we're while we're in the, on this topic, because I'm doing gear testing. I have probably about 11 pairs of trail runners sitting in my cupboard at the moment. Yep. Um, and, and I will end up using those. You know, if I if I were to stop testing gear today, I would uh, use Probably never buy another pair of shoes probably, again. Probably never <laughs> buy another pair of shoes again. But I, but I do go through about three to four pairs a year. Yeah, that's fair. So it's, it's the sort of thing that, uh, um, you know, I'm not going to throw them away just for the sake of it. I will use them. The next R we're going to talk about is reusing. You may have a box of things that you've got uh, broken or um, put aside at home, uh, but you hang on to them just in case. So the example I use here is I own eight packs. Um, now, most of them do perform different functions. Uh, they're not all identical. Uh, but in some cases, there's a few of them that I'm never likely to use again. If they're in good condition and you don't plan on using them again, you've got a couple of options. You can either keep them as spares if you do take friends or relatives hiking occasionally. You can donate it to uh, to charity uh, or give it to, to friends if you want to. Um, and, uh, I mean, certainly in this case here, Jill ensures that uh, um, if the items aren't reused, we tend to donate them to charity just so they're not being wasted. Yeah, I I am a bit picky about that. Um, if I'm not going to use it, I do, and it's in good condition, I still want it to be used by somebody somewhere. And if it's family or friends that have shown an interest, I will quiz them about what they're actually going to do with it. And if I'm not convinced <laughs> um, that they're going to use it, I, I, I'll probably not give it to them and uh, suggest to them that they don't really need it. A couple of other things that are particularly relevant from a hiking perspective is things like batteries. Um, rechargeable batteries uh, will often give a better uh, use. I mean, rather than having a set of batteries you use for a few days or even a week or so, throw away into a landfill and get another set and you keep on going through this. 
rechargeable batteries, while they tend to be more expensive for good quality batteries up front, can be used over and over again. So you, you're using less uh, raw materials to, to go through and, and, and generate your batteries. Um, for us, we use uh, peanut butter jars for rehydrating food in, and this is typically for uh, breakfasts and lunches more so than anything else. Uh, and this this replaces my food bowl for a lot of cases. Um, so it means I buy a jar of peanut butter, um, I use it uh, to eat the peanut butter out of, um, and not in all cases. I mean, there's only there's a limit to how many jars I can actually generate. Uh, but certainly uh, uh, I do have a number of uh, empty peanut butter jars in my cupboard that I do use uh, for hiking. And funnily enough, those peanut peanut butter jars do come in uh, handy and we do use them even when we're not hiking. So they do get quite a bit of use. So the performance measure, I think, for um, reuse is really the volume of waste that you have at the end of the hike. Um, so the more waste you have, the less successful you've been in reusing things. So, you know, if you can pack your waste into the smallest, smallest, smallest possible bag, then you've done pretty well. And, and getting back to the Ziploc bags again, I, um, uh, I'll i typically have a large Ziploc bag with each day's worth of food in it. And then within that, there'll be smaller bags containing the individual bits and pieces if it or if it doesn't already come in its own packaging. Now, while I won't use every Ziploc bag again and again, the big large bags I do reuse um, because all they've, they haven't had a lot of use and they haven't had um, dirty food in. I'll generally sacrifice one for rubbish uh, just to keep things uh, zipped up and tidied up. Uh, but again, as far as I can, I reuse particularly the larger ones. Not always possible in the um, the smaller uh, uh, the smaller ziplocs. Uh, if you've had um, uh, some sort of raw food in there, um, it may not be hygienic to use them, or you may have to wash them. Um, yeah, this take this takes me back to Tim's mother's practice of uh, uh, reusing when. Um styrofoam meat trays were a thing um, and you know we have to remember that she's from the the war years um, and she used to re reuse the styrofoam meat trays uh, by washing them uh, in the washing machine in cold water with your underpants <laughs> <laughs> and I gotta say <laughs> that that seriously turned me off. So, you know, you have to think about hygiene and you do have to be a bit circumspect about what you can reuse, um, how much uh, vigorous washing and cleaning it's going to be able to take before uh, it disintegrates. So, you know, again, I come back to it's it's quite a complex thing and whatever you're doing, however you're doing it, the, the real key is just to think about it and think about what's possible and test the, the boundaries of it. The last of our R's is recycling. And this is when something um, is able to be reused once you've used it to death. You know, you can no longer uh, reuse it. You can't turn it into anything else. It's, you know, this is a product that's basically had it um, and can be uh, recycled and developed back into some other product in, in a new life. Yeah, so really this is about the raw materials in one product being 
um, recycled into raw materials for another product. Now, a good example here is if you're using the small gas canisters used for the canister stoves, uh, jet boils, um, the MSRs, um, or even just the little sta- the, the little standard stoves without the integrated um, uh, units. That you know, you you screw these things on, you light them, uh, you get ex- you get so many uses out of them, and then you throw them away. Um, you've got two choices here. You can either throw them in the rubbish and they get buried in landfill, uh, or you can actually uh, put them into uh, metal recycling. Now, if you're going to go through and do this, it needs to be very clear that it has been emptied. Uh, they don't like coming across gas cylinders when they're going through the recycling process if they're not sure that they're actually emptied. So in this case here, you're tending to put holes in the actual canisters to make, make it obvious that the canisters are empty. And it's also good to actually physically damage them and crush them, a bit like, say, beer cans or aluminium cans, uh, just to make it really obvious that, uh, that they have been, been emptied and in, all, all up. One of the products that's not so commonly available, but you can actually get it uh, uh, on the market. You've just got to know where to find it, and I'll put the link to this in the show notes and the uh, the written version of this article. Jetboil produce a product called the Crunch Kit Fuel Canister Recycling Tool. And basically what it is is you just insert this unit into there and it crushes and, and, and put, puts holes in the cylinders. And it's, it, it's designed uh, for... But making it easy to, to recycle. Now, not a cheap product. Uh, if you're only using one, one, one or two canisters a year, probably not worth it. Um, but if you're using a lot of canisters, uh, it may be a, a good option um, if, you, if, you, if you want to go through and make it a, an easy, easy process for you. There might even be an option uh, of you going into your local outdoor store and asking them about... Uh you know, collecting up some of these canisters for recycling. So um, they might be willing to purchase one of these tools and collect up the canisters and um, get them recycled. So that's that's another option to think about, I think. And certainly if, if anyone knows of any any outdoor stores in Australia that do this, please let us know and we'll put the link on here just to, you know, if, uh, if we can sort of find links in each of the city, the main cities in particular, uh, it'd be quite helpful. Now, with recycling, I think the thing really to be mindful of is that it's about a purchasing decision in large part. So you need to look for products made from materials that can be recycled at the end of life, um, being aware that not everything uh, is possible to be recycled for various reasons um, that I won't go into, um, or you need to be purchasing products that are made from recycled materials. So it really is the thing that you need to be mindful of when you're making the purchase rather than after you've used it. And we'll talk about um, some of the companies that do this in a couple of minutes. In relation to, uh, you know, you've gone through, you've got the three R's, uh, but there are also some practices that you can consider uh, that will help you on your way to, to doing the right thing. And the first of those is removing and recycling packaging before you leave home. I mean, again, this comes back to a bit of weight reduction, but it's, um, it's you know, why, why take 
plastic wrapping or wrapping uh, or even cardboard boxes uh, on trips if you don't need to. Uh, if you take them with you when you're hiking, more than likely it's 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 going to end up in the rubbish bin uh, if you can't find a, a recycling container somewhere. So, you know, if you can strip off some of the excess packaging at home before you leave, that's going to make things a lot easier. Um, you know, be conscious about what you're actually taking on your hikes. Um, you know, is it better to take things that have plastic or foil or or paper packaging? Um, but uh, as Jill mentioned, it's got to be uh, done in a way that will actually keep the food healthy and safe. And it really is, in particular, it's food we're talking about here, food waste. Um, you know, the packaging that tends to come with hiking gear, you know, you, you don't tend to take that with you when you go hiking. There's also quality over quantity. Um, so as an example, if you buy a cheap product that you know, may last you um, one, one year or maybe two years, as opposed to a product that might last you five or six or seven years. So as it stands at the moment, my oldest pack is um, uh, 2011. So it's eight years old. It's still in really good condition. Um, there's nothing wrong with it. It will last for a number of years yet. Uh, whereas I could have gone to the local um, now be careful here, local big box store if you like, and buy something really cheap, um, and it, the quality of it may not have been there. So I, I tend to be one of these people that will buy brand name products because they they typically will put the time and, and effort into making these things durable in most cases. Yeah, and we'll talk about um, another aspect to that in, in a minute in relation to being able to trace the, um, the value chain and uh, the production processes with branded products. And the other thing with buying quality here as well is, you know, it, it's usually if you're talking about quality, you're talking about expense as well. So in that respect, you know, you've everyone's got a budget to work to uh, work to, uh, and you know, do you buy a six hundred dollar sleeping bag as opposed to a four hundred dollar or a three hundred dollar sleeping bag? Um, you know, you've got to work within a budget. The product has got to do what you need it to do. Uh, but if you've got a choice of two products that are equivalent in performance, uh, supposed durability, and the price is very similar, you know, choose the one that uh, is going to uh, give you a better environmental outcome. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, sometimes, again, I keep coming back to this is not as easy as it sounds, but sometimes that can be quite hard. Now, Jill talked about ethical production and there. The hiking industry or the outdoor industry in particular, there are a number of companies that are starting to do what you would class as ethical production. I think this is a really exciting thing and, you know, uh, we'll be talking about some of the uh, the brands in a minute. But, yeah, I, th I, th I think for me you, you, you can minimise what you're carrying. You can, you know, put your food in paper or do whatever you like. But... If fundamentally you're not making choices about the way in which things are manufactured, um, then it it kind of defeats the purpose. So, I mean, uh, we 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 are including the the exploitation of workers here as well. So, knowing that um, your product has been manufactured in a plant that pay fair wages and look after their employee employees um, is something that. 
a lot of people may not necessarily think about. Um, I know looking at a lot of online um, uh, groups where people are discussing, discussing purchasing gear and where gear comes from, it's rare that I see that uh, people say, oh, this company looks after their workers really well or this company produces really environmentally friendly gear. It, it is often price-driven. Um, and again, just because something's cheap doesn't mean it hasn't been produced ethically. Knowing something has that has been produced in an environmentally friendly manner and they also look after their staff, um, sometimes it's hard to trace. Uh, and knowing that these companies do that uh, is a bit of a bonus, even if you have to pay a bit more. Yeah, I think, you know, there are some things that go hand in hand here and, and you know, we, we, we know enough about the world that um, exploitation of uh, workers and damage to the environment and, you know, we've got a recent uh, a topical case of uh, uh, chlorofluorocarbons that were banned in the 90s and now... Uh, being traced by certain parts, uh, certain manufacturing plants in China, um, and you, you know there the, there are indicators that that say there's a bunch of things that go together that mean we're having an impact on uh, social and environmental things. So when we talk about ethical production, there's a couple of processes that we tend to know reasonably well, uh, and probably the most common one is the responsible down standard. Now, we will provide a link uh, in our show notes and in the written version of this podcast. And the Responsible Down Standard is an independent, voluntary, global standard which allows companies to certify their products uh, to say that we are doing uh, producing down and using down that's been used in the best way. And this um, basically includes animal welfare, uh, industry experts, uh, brands and retailers. Um, and what this basically recognises is that the removal of down and feathers from live birds, like, uh, uh, also known as live plucking, is prohibited. Uh, so in, in unethical down, they're actually pulling the down, which is the undercoat of the, uh, um, the, 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 the underneath the feathers, off live birds. Uh, and that's not particularly a good practice. Uh, the reason they do this is the the demand for down is so high, uh, there's not enough uh, uh, meat, uh, birds, geese and ducks that are being used worldwide uh, to produce uh, uh, the amount of down that's needed. So the live plucking tends to be used. And also it's important to note um, that if you're taking down from uh, birds that are used in animal, produ animal production, um, the birds are smaller and uh, the down isn't as uh, warm as what it is for um, bigger birds. The other thing that this, uh, this standard does is uh, prohibits force feeding. Um, you know, and if you think back to the days of pate when they force feed uh, animals to try and accelerate the growth and get, get their livers nice and fat for, for making pate. Um, so overall, it provides a holistic respect for animal welfare um, and... It takes that from the, um, the hatching to the slaughter process. Now, companies that use this uh, will have a, um, a tag on, typically it's sleeping bags in particular, uh, and also down jackets that say that uh, this, this product's been produced in an ethical way. Uh, it'll be tagged, uh, and each stage in the supply chain is audited by professional third-party certification uh, body. 
So only products with a 100% certified down can carry this logo. Now in Australia, as an example, um, Cedar Summit uh, produce all their sleeping bags using ethical down. Now what this means is this is a more expensive process. Uh, they could make their sleeping bags much cheaper by using not using ethical down, but they've, they've taken a stand uh, to provide this, this level of product. Now, the other companies that do this are North Face uh, and Patagonia, uh, and they're, 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 more and more companies are coming online with this in the production of their products. Yeah, and there might be other companies, and if you are aware of others, let us know, but um, I think Tim said at the beginning, um, this is an area that um, is a little bit hard to research. So um, these three companies are making this a big part of their marketing push. Um, others may not yet be at that stage, but we'd certainly like to know about them. Now, the other thing that's happening on the market, and again, this is a company called Patagonia, which many people may or may not be aware of. They've been taking a an environmental stand for a number of years now, and, and they've actually got a program which is available in the States, uh, and I'm not too sure if it's coming through to Australia yet. I don't think so. And this is called Patagonia Warnware. Um, and then basically what they do is um, they take um, uh, used and worn clothes, uh, refurbish it, uh, where it's, you know, it's got to be of a, a certain standard, uh, refurbish it, and then resell it again as part of their worn wear uh, 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 range. Um, so this is a, a way of taking gear which you ha you've finished using and can't find a use for and putting it back out into the market again. And it's a really interesting one when you read the promotional um, material on this. They, they talk about your, you know, your pre-loved gear, you know, well-worn, pre-loved, um, and you want to see it um, continue to be used by others. So there's, there's kind of a, a real connection, if you like, uh, with the item that they're fostering. I must admit, I, I think I, I, I don't know if I'll ever be a candidate for this program. My very first sleeping bag, which I, I was using for probably around about 25 years, <laughs> um, it was a really wonderful sleeping bag when I got it as a teenager. And it was only a, I, I replaced it after I'm thinking, this is not keeping me warm anymore because the down was progressively coming out of it. Um, that's a good. That's a good effort, though, Tim. Hey, it is. A, it is a good effort. I suspect that it wasn't um, ethical down, though, was it? No, it probably wouldn't have been in those days. Um, and a lot of my clothing, I tend to wear things to death. You know, the amount of holes that end up with it. Yeah, a lot yes. of a lot of my ex clothes. Yes. <laughs> a lot of my ex clothing becomes painting gear and gardening gear that you know it's. I, I wear it into the ground. So uh, and then it becomes rags after that. So it it certainly gets its its lifespan out of anything I tend to use. Now, before we actually finish off on, on this particular topic, one comment I will make that's um, of something that's appearing onto the market these days is there are a number of companies that are choosing to release white rain jackets. Uh, and there's a few different brands that you'll see in, in the stores when you go into. And the whole reasoning for this is dyeing and chemically colouring uh, this material is quite an intensive process as far as water usage and uh, manufacturing process. 
So by not colouring the jackets uh, and saying, well, I'm, I'm wearing a white jacket not because I happen to like that particular colour, uh, it's because I'm, I'm trying to do something environmentally friendly. Um, you know, this is where these white jackets tend to be becoming more and more common. Having said that, though, um, um, I must admit, I still tend to like the colourful jackets. Um, I will get dirty regardless of what colour I'm wearing anyway. Uh, and, and, and first and foremost, my selection of equipment is based on does it do what I want it to do uh, and is it comfortable? I, I've got a you know bit of an issue about this because these white jackets are beautifully white and yes they will get dirty with wear and I'm not sure how clean they'll come um, but you know I, I get the point that they're not dyeing them uh, and that saves some impact on the environment but what's making them so white that's that would be my question and what's the impact of that so I'm just going to leave it there because I suspect there's something else going on here too. Sorry. <laughs> All right. So as as Jill mentioned earlier, um, the impact we have on the environment as hikers, reducing that um, – it can be easy, but not in all cases. So I think not in a holistic way. I think you know you can you can fiddle around the edges, and as I said, you can you know um, wrap wrap your food in paper or wax paper or whatever it might be. But you've got to ask yourselves if you if you're replacing gear a lot, if you're not um, uh, looking into ethical production, you know what what's really the point of that. Um, in a broader context. Okay, so I think the most um, most positive impact we can have is by supporting the companies that have embraced the sustainable and ethical production. And I suppose coming back to a planning perspective, really think about what you're about to buy, uh, think about what you're carrying on hikes and working out if you really need that additional plastic bag or that particular product. Um, or can we get away without using it? That's that's the thing that probably the impact we can have is 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 thinking about what we're doing and thinking about how we can improve things. That's all for this week's episode. In next week's episode, our bonus episode for June, we're going to be talking to Jolyn Carvin about the creative process behind getting the Boots McFarlane cartoon published. Um, this is a cartoon that I've been following for a number of years, uh, and even though it's American-based, I can see a lot of my hiking uh, experiences reflected in these cartoons. Is it hiking eccentricities, I think, is probably what you see. That's certainly <laughs> what I laugh at, but anyway. <laughs> All right. So, again, so that'll be next week's episode. As always, you can listen to this podcast episode through the Australian Hiker website, at www.australianhiker.com.au, through SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and while I've used have been for so long used to saying iTunes, I suppose I really need to start saying Apple Podcasts, um, which is the way everyone seems to be referring to them. Um, and give us a five star rating on the Apple Podcast app to help get the message out there. That's all for me. Bye for now, and bye from me.